Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I am honoured to have Lar McDonald and Mike Isretel on the podcast together. It happened, um, it's going to be very exciting, and today they're going to be talking about um, the really kind of interesting and prolific study um, that's been talked about all over the place by Brad Schoenfeld's labs. Um, and first of all, I'll briefly introduce what that study was for the listeners who don't, don't aren't aware of it. Um, and then I'll let each of them kind of go over their points and we can have a chat about this. And hopefully I think this is going to be a really interesting and we're draw some things out. And I think that's the brilliance of science. And these are two great minds within the industry. So I think this is going to be really exciting. So First of all, to introduce the study, uh, it was called Resistance Training Volumes Enhances Muscle Hypertrophy, but Not Strength in Trained Men. So the study had three times per week full body training. There were seven exercises. Participants were trained somewhat. There was one, three, or three or five sets, so kind of a low, medium, and higher volume. And they were working within the 8 to 12 repetition range, working towards failure. This was ran for eight weeks. So an example of how much volume that looks and how that's different is for the quads, for the low volume group, they were doing nine sets per week. For the medium volume group, they're doing 27. And for the high volume group, they were doing 45 sets for their quads um, because there was three quad movements within those exercises. And this was progressively overloaded via load um, over the weeks, but they were reducing load to stay within the repetition range. As you can imagine, it probably get pretty tough to stay there and working towards failure. So the outcome, kind of the conclusion from the study, was that muscle hypertrophy follows a dose-response relationship with increasingly greater gains achieved with higher training volumes. They also stated about how you can actually achieve kind of some decent results with less, um, but it kind of showed the dose-response relationship which we're seeing within the literature. So if Lyle wants to start off kind of with your point that you wanted to make towards Mike, and then Mike can come back with uh, what you'd like to say. I mean, you know, as I've done before, I could probably blabber about tons of stuff. I kind of got three main ones, and I think it's easiest to kind of address them at once. This is not one of them, but I think it's worth repeating. You know, the workout to me, five sets of 15 RM in squats on 90 seconds, that's an impossible workout to use with any, any kind of load. I mean, I, I don't – this seems like the definition of junk volume to me, but that, that's kind of neither here nor there. I just don't think most humans could achieve it. Um, so my first real point, and this is a methodological one, had to do with how the measurements were done, which was via ultrasound, right? It's a very commonly used method. Uh, most studies do. There's other methods, MRI, DEXA, biopsy. Some use uh, tape measure and calipers, which is awful. Um, I want to note uh, the paper Mike was involved with used MRI, ultrasound, and a biopsy of the quads, uh, which is rare, I think, in terms of using multiple methods, but good. <clears throat> and then if all the metrics are going in the same direction and, and your study actually had some really interesting things in terms of muscle shrinking and then growing it. But regardless, Brad's study has traditionally only used ultrasound, which has its own set of issues, not the least of which is there is some subjectivity. And my problem isn't with the method, but it's with the fact that Brad did the ultrasound himself and was not blinded to who was in which group. Right now, for listeners, and I hope I'm not going over boring information, right? You blind studies, you can blind the subjects, the, the researchers themselves, the people doing the measurements, the statisticians. There's even some push to blind the peer reviewers, and this is to reduce bias. 
needs example. Uh, my mom was in the symphony. They used to let the conductors listen to the musicians play. And somebody noted that there were kind of a dearth of women getting elected or getting the job. And then when they prevented the conductors from knowing who was playing male or female, suddenly more women got the job because they're being judged on the music rather than, right? So there's a lot of, it doesn't have to be an explicit bias. We all have our own little biases and you blind to avoid that. And I would say by most standards, right, the, the one I'm going to look at and just quote from briefly, right, is the Cochrane tool for assessing risk of bias in randomized clinical trials. Or actually, it's just the Cochrane risk of bias tool. It's one of the most common used methods to see if studies have bias to, to test their validity. Page F2, it lists blinding of outcome assessment, right, the post-study measurement as a detection bias. And a high risk of bias is described as detection bias due to knowledge of the allocated interventions by outcome assessors. That is, the guy doing the measurements knows who's in which group. It, studies can be blinded, right? This can clearly be done um, just because I thought it was interesting, right? Brad st stated in Brad's paper, the lead researcher, trained technician, performed all testing, didn't mention blinding one way or the other, but it's standard to say that it is blinded. And just for interest, I pulled a bunch of the studies by the gentleman that uh, the lab Mike's paper came out of. The same investigator performed ultrasound assessments and was blinded to the treatment groups. From Wilson ketogenic diet study, same investigator performed ultrasound and was blinded. Right, Blinded can be done and Brad didn't do it. That raises a tremendous risk of bias to me. So I'd ask Mike, um, do you think that that was a valid choice or does it have any uh, effect on the validity of the results? Yeah, sure. Do, would you like me to respond now? Uh, I mean, yeah, I have a bunch more stuff I could say, but it's not really relevant. It's just more along that line. So do you think that, that Brad doing the ultrasound in an unblinded fashion is valid or correct and, and, and or does it have any impact on the validity of the study? Yeah, that's a very good point. So um, in sports science research, um, in a considerable amount of it, probably most uh, so ideally, what you want to see from research is double blinding, or at whatever levels of intervention you have, you blind every single level. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, in sports science, uh, a huge swath of the studies is actually very, very common to have either single blinding or not really any blinding. Um, a lot of the literature conducted on uh, vibration, a lot of literature conducted on training in general is uh, not blinded at all. Some of it is single blinded and any combination there is uh, to that. So the uh, critique on blinding is, I think, uh, carries some validity with it, but it's not unique to the Schoenfeld study in particular. Um, quite a few of the studies that you're using on your site to support your various ideas, most of which uh, I agree with, by the way, um, had no blinding or limited blinding. Um, uh, and I think it's okay to take issue with blinding on principle. I think it's okay to take issue with it in this study per se, but it's uh, sort of interesting that it, this has not uh, seemingly been a big issue with other studies that you've cited approvingly, but this time it is a big issue. Um, now, now to, to the effect that it uh, sort of boosts your argument, I think, you know, could every study be better with more extensive blinding? Almost certainly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, does not having blinding limit the power of conclusions to some extent of any study? Absolutely. Right? Uh, but it doesn't erase those conclusions. It just reduces their certainty. And the thing is that there is no perfect study. Um, all studies are sitting somewhere on a spectrum between completely unable to conclude anything um, 
and all the way to you know uh, clinical trials of aspartame where it's a thousand people per group and the thing runs for three years and it's triple blinded and uh, so on and so forth so i think all studies should be treated with garden interpretation um and not just this one so i think that the blinding uh critique is a valid critique but it, it uh, it's confusing why it's only being applied to this study per se um uh, and uh you know i think uh, uh, if studies were all double blinded that would be great but i don't think they all have to be to get some glean uh some amount of evidence some amount of directionality out of them so we can say okay you know the study definitely could have been better which by the way can be said for any study but maybe there's something we can learn here and i think this is absolutely the case for this one um as for uh, your other uh, sort of previous uh, comments that you've expressed uh, in regard to bias, um, you know, if we were really to go down that rabbit hole, and I, I don't enjoy going down this rabbit hole at all, but if we were to accuse Brad Schoenfeld of a preconceived bias based on his publication history, and I actually have one of his studies pulled up on my phone, um, basically based on that history, his last uh, review of the literature, which I'm holding up on my phone right now, uh, basically he says that he thinks that a graded exposure between 10 and 20 sets per week is likely a good middle ground where most people will benefit. And he says nothing about higher volumes than that being a good idea. So if we're thinking that he biased the research because he wanted more volume to be the correct group, he would be contradicting himself and uh, sort of making himself look, you know, I think he put if he did this on purpose, he put himself in a hell of a bind, but if he was really biasing, he could have just not put himself into that bind. I mean, if I was Brad and I was really lying, I would have just been like, hey, you know, the lowest volume group won, just like I thought it would, but he seems to have sort of shot himself in the foot, which would be really confusing if he was trying to bias. Now, of course, bias works in a variety of quite mysterious and non-directional ways, so the blinding critique still has a ton of merit, but it has no more merit here than I think it does in the vast majority of studies in sports science, which are either single-blinded or not blinded at all. Um, and, and just to, to further bolster the Brad point, um, you know, he constantly refutes his own ideas. Um, he was a big proponent of bro splits, and then he, his own research debunked that, and the hypertrophy, the rep range, and his own research debunked that. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, the blinding critique has some weight for sure, as it does for all studies, but I don't think it has any particular weight with regards to this study specifically. Um, that would be my thoughts on the matter. Okay, well, and I, again, I, we're going to agree on more things than we're not. So as far as why I'm picking on this particular study, that'll be a later point in time why I've been particularly attentive. I don't disagree that there's a lot of sloppy research. It is. I agree when I looked, so I looked at sort of a cursory glance, a lot of studies did it. Um, actually, Brad himself, his name appears on 17 papers related to muscle growth. 12 were out of his lab. Two mentioned explicitly being unblinded. The others say nothing. Uh, three of the ones he was in were explicitly blinded. He was not the lead researcher. And then the rest didn't mention it. So, yeah, it is a sloppiness problem all around. I don't know why, though, because it seems like such a trivial problem to solve, both in this case and in general. I, I would say it's not a trivial problem at all. I think blinding has significant methodological difficulties with it. Um, you have to have simultaneously an individual who is unaware of the structure of the treatment groups and someone who is qualified enough to do ultrasound or whatever form of analysis you're doing. In a lot of research settings, that, that's the same person. That's just one person. And I, I listen, Lyle, I'm 100% with you that I think all studies should be better and need to be better. But we have to take whatever studies we have and get out of them what we have. And to that point, the conclusions that uh, Schoenfeld and colleagues 
companies draw from their own work are so highly limited, I don't think the magnitude of their conclusions outweighs the limitations of their study. Like if they said everyone needs to train forever with 60 sets or more, then that UG, you know, that single binding would be a real big deal. But what they say is way, way more guarded than that. And we can get to exactly what they say later, if you like. Right. Well, I mean, here was their word for word conclusion. I don't think it's guarded in the least. It says, we show that increases in multiple muscle hypertrophy follow a dose-response relationship with increasingly greater gains achieved with higher training volumes. Thus, those seeking to maximize muscular growth need to allot a greater amount of weekly time to reach. That is not a guarded conclusion. That is extremely strong. We can get back to that later. I'm not entirely clear. Maybe you can explain this to me why, why the person also has to be blinded to the structure of the study. If someone's just getting sent in and say measure subject one, why does knowing the structure of the study have any impact? Because they've probably been in the training sessions themselves and know who subject one is and know they were in the high volume. But that's also why you have other exercise specialists, which I believe Brad's paper did train the people. Yeah. Yeah. Look, ideally, you know, ideally you would split up a a variety of things. You know, again, I I think, look, if if we redid Brad's study to make it even stronger, you would absolutely look at blinding as one of the ways in which to make it stronger. But I don't think that destroys the validity of a study. I think it reduces the validity potentially of the study, but I don't think it reduces it out of scope of his conclusions. Um, And just to get back to those real quick, we might as well just talk about this now. The conclusion was that people who want hypertrophy uh, should, what is it, should consider training, sort of uh, doing more total training time. Uh, a greater amount of weekly time. To a choose. later greater amount of weekly. I mean, but geez, that, I, don't, don't, I don't think that sounds controversial to me at all. They, they, they mention no distinct volume recommendations. They never say people should train with 45 sets plus. They don't say 30 sets. They don't mention sets at all. They just say, look, you know, because we found muscle growth was higher and higher with each graded uh, you know, dose of volume, that you know, maybe training more resulted in more muscle growth. Man, you know, that, I thought that was literature consensus. It's just that they happened to find it at a, at a different range than others where, you know, others, the majority of other studies found it a bit lower. They found it a bit higher. Uh, that's a very interesting point that I could talk about what that means or why they found it higher, potentially why, what that could mean. But their conclusions are super limited in the sense like, you know, you can probably train more, you probably get more jacked. I'm sure as hell not going to tell people that's not true because it's just another way of saying more volume is better, uh, which is what their study seemed to find. Now, uh, you know, I think that's this is a very guarded conclusion. If they said, look, people should, uh, if they said, look, anyone who trains less than 30 sets per week is clearly just missing out. It should be training to 45. It was a huge problem with that conclusion, but that's just not what they said at all. They just said, you know, maybe more is better, which yes, what their study they, shows they, they, and almost they, every they, other study shows. They could have said this suggests, this shows a trend, this supports. We're going to go around in circles, so I'll drop What did they here. say exactly, Lyle? Can you repeat that last line they said? <sighs> Those seeking to mac- maximize muscular growth need not may need, might not pause, to a lot a greater amount of weekly time to achieve. They are saying more is better with no qualification. The other study said more is better up to a point. Well, and that's a big difference. <laughs> well, the thing is, they didn't find a point in the study. They're actually being true to their results. I mean, based on the based on the study they conducted, that conclusion is exactly what the study implies. What you do with that in the real world is a different question altogether. Which, by the way, they've also clarified numerous times, and we could speak to their uh, to their writings on exactly how to interpret that study in the real world. So, what they're basically saying is, look, there's a graded graded response for muscle and growth, and people should a lot more if they want to grow more. 
more, but generally good advice. Now, if we get into the specifics, which they didn't, we can start to make much better recommendations. But I think that uh, they don't, I, to me, they're not stepping out on a huge limb. Listen, I, when I first saw the study uh, a while, I was pissed because I have a whole, the MRV concept is in this entire concept. I fucking developed predicated an idea that you can't, that there is a, 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 a too much, right? And when this study came out, people literally messaged me and they were like, Hey, Mr. MRV, fuck you. <laughs> looks like you got to eat shit. And I was like, God damn, that sucks. But then I read it and they said, I was like, okay, well, you know, it seems to point an interesting trend with a couple caveats, which I can get to later, but it doesn't shock me in the least. And I don't think, I don't think it oversteps any bounds. Well, just again, uh, what they qualified after the fact, I, I don't really care about. I care about Why not? Said. I mean, you, you engage them, you engage them extensively. My predominantly with this study and what it claimed and the fact that I feel that it it didn't actually support the conclusion. And that's point two that we should get to. Sure. When it was first presented, Brad presented it in a very strong light of, we have shown this. James Frieder said on a YouTube video somewhere, we have new data that's going to blow top-end volumes out of the recommendations, right? These are not qualified statements. Maybe they didn't sp- specify the numbers, but they are saying without qualification, more is better. And I don't think you and I, because you know, would agree that that is true. There is a point of optimal returns, a point of diminishing returns. Your paper showed that yourself. Sure. So. I don't. So in, in, in uh, the vast majority of the writings, uh, they absolutely give qualifications and they do not support the idea that more is better without qualifications. They simply don't. Now, I understand you had engaged with them to some extent. So I think you do value what they said after the study instead of just saying the study speaks for itself. Uh, and I studies require actually, a lot of interpretations. So I, well, I actually wasn't know, able to engage with them because they all blocked me, but that's neither. Lyle, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very curious critique coming from you. You know, you've blocked probably half of social media by now. You tend to block people that you find are stupid and annoying and, and maybe they thought the same of you i didn't you know when people get belligerent blocking is not entirely out of the question i personally don't block people but i kind of see where they're coming from you know right but to ask Brad to answer questions and to block me and for him to say i'm blocking you because you question my entire so neither here nor there i think we should just <laughs> we're not going sure. to i just want to qualify for the listeners and for you guys the conclusion kind of says quite a bit more than Lyle said initially. It does kind of suggest that it says the present study shows that marked increases in strength can be attained by resistance trained individuals with just three 30 minute sessions per week. And that gains are similar to that achieved with a substantially greater time commitment when training in well, a moderate rep range. But I'm not interested in the strength data, which also pretty much goes against every other study. I was only focused on the hypertrophy claims. I will, yes, you are correct. They did say the opposite in terms of the strength gains. We're talking about getting jacked. Nobody cares about it. Yeah, it, said, it. it did say so, that those seeking to maximize muscular growth need to allot a greater amount of weekly time to achieve this goal. As shown directly in their study and as confirmed by the graded volume relationship in nearly every other study. Up to a point. There's no disagreement. And we're getting into something. They would be making that up, Lyle, because they didn't find that point. So it it would be unscientific for them to say up to a point. Now, the Hahn study, we sort of found that point a little bit. There's a German volume study. They kind of found that point relatively conclusively. Those studies are allowed to speak to that. There's a difference between what you can say in your study, which is only what the evidence shows, and you have to be guarded, yes, but you also have to say straightforward what the study found. And then after that, uh, you know, in professional conferences and social media releases, you say now. Now, taking this study with the totality of the evidence altogether, now we can start to talk about, okay, like, is there a point? How do you find that point? But their study says, is, look, look, maybe that point's a bit higher than we thought. And I think that's very likely the case. 
Well, then let's get to the next point to see sure. if the data actually did support that conclusion, because I don't think it did. Um, for people who want a much more detailed version of what I'm going to say, Brian Butcher has done a very good analysis of statistics. So let's get to that and talk a little bit about the statistics that they use to see if it does actually support the conclusions. This is going to be boring as hell. I'm sure nobody cares. It's a lot of details that no but I'm not going to try to get into the, the woods on this because I would simply explain it badly and probably get it wrong. So as you know, they use two methods of statistical analysis. The first is called frequentist. This is a method that generates what's called the p-value. This is a probability basically that the data is strong enough to support that it's different enough from the null hypothesis to be correct. Right. So in this case, the hypothesis is <clears throat> a graded volume will lead to a graded growth, and the null is that it won't. Right. Now, generally speaking, as you well know, p-value of 0.05 is kind of the standard cutoff. I'm sure you also know there's a lot of debate about this, about whether it should be an absolute cutoff, whether that value is too high, and a whole lot of other things. Neither here nor there because they chose the p-cutoff of 0.05 to support significance, so that's what they have to live by. Also, the p-value of people listening, again, I know you don't care. It's just kind of a yes-no thing, right? It doesn't say... If it says something is statistically different or greater, it doesn't tell you how much. It doesn't tell you anything other than statistically, this data is different enough from the null to be considered significant. Is that a, do you agree that that's kind of a reasonable explanation? I, I, I think that's quite reasonable. Okay. I just want to make sure because I, sure. I spent the last week boning up on this because I know it's certainly not my strong point. Okay, so where does it go? All right, so this is all coming from figure one in the paper, if anybody wants to check my math. So one thing that didn't get mentioned, I think, in the, the process was the four muscles they measured were biceps, triceps, rectus femoris, the hip flexor, and vastus lateralis, the outer quad, which they used as kind of an aggregate measure of quadriceps. I suspect when we get to the volume bit, you and I will address the set counting issue, because I think that's something we can certainly quibble about. If counting predominantly, if one set of a compound exercise is really equal to one set of an isolation exercise, that's for, I think, your half. Um, regardless, this is what they were measuring. So for the triceps, looking at the group, the p-value was 0.19, right? It didn't even reach significance between groups. Now, somebody wanted me to make the very important point. This doesn't mean they grew equally, right? Saying that there was no statistical difference is not saying that they were the same. And apparently that's one of those minor p-value things that, that a lot of people miss, right? So I'm not saying all three groups for triceps muscle grew the same. There was no statistical significance by their cutoff. So that one never even went to compare the different groups. For the other three muscles, significant group differences were seen. P, 0.02 for biceps, 0.02 for rectus, 0.006 for, lat, for vastus lateralis, and that's for the whole group. So then they go to the pairwise difference, comparing two groups out of the three to each other, right? So low to moderate, moderate to high, low to high. And over in the right-hand column of figure one, and again, this is something that Brian Butcher gets into in detail in the Reddit analysis, the three and the five cent group have the same No, 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 it's fine. Reddit analysis is just a funny term, being that well, Reddit it, is well, out sorry, analysis No, no, Lyle, it was a fine use of terms. Please, please continue. No, but I know. I don't use Reddit because I don't like the, uh, the, the interface, but you're For right. Sure. It, in a post to Reddit 
is where he it's a valid is a valid point. Please continue. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, so as he pointed out, the three and five sec groups had the same B superscript, right? So even though they may have been different from the the one sec group, and there's no I don't think we have any debate over that, right? That up to whatever that higher volumes up to a point or at some level are better than lower volumes, right? I don't think there's you and I have any disagreement there, right? Twelve is probably better than six, and eighteen may be better than at some point. Anyway, so we're really focused on the three and five sec groups. And basically, there was no, based on just the p-value alone, there was no statistically significant difference between the three and the five set group. P-value does not support the dose response claim. And I'll stop there until I get to the second half, but any thoughts on that? Uh, The second half of the statistical critique? Well, no, just as far as what I just said about p-value, is there anything you want to respond to as far as before I talk about the Bayesian stuff, which is a separate thing, like the sure. p-values do not support a difference between three and five sets. And if the paper had been published with only those statistics, the conclusion would be that there is no difference. Yeah. Based on the you know, there's a, a ton of the scientific community is now becoming incrementally more skeptical of the value of p-values, not to make a pun out of it. Uh, p-values seem to be a very limited tool, and I think they're an effective, yet actually limited tool. So uh, I think p-values are important to look at in the context of a variety of other statistical analyses. So uh, I, I think that we shouldn't overread into p-values, but shouldn't ignore them completely. So I'd, I'd actually, if you want to uh, sort of make the... Um, bring up the other statistical critiques. I think I have uh, something. For yeah. That. And again, we're, we're on the same page there. And I, I kind of tried to address that. I know there's a lot of debate. There's, a, I think, a famous paper titled Our Most Scientific uh, Findings That Have Been Published Wrong, to which I asked the question, what if that paper is one of the ones that's wrong? But that's just me being silly. Um, and they base that on the fact that that P of 0.05 seems to be far too large a lot of problems. So yeah, there, it's just that if they picked that value, kind of they have to live by it, regardless of that today. All right, so next was what's called a Bayesian analysis. And this, rather than p-value, which is like a yes, no, is it or is it not significant, Bayesian analysis, if you want to call it the Bayes factors, tells you the probability of one hypothesis being more likely than the other. Right? Again, it doesn't tell you bad, it just says, is this more likely to be true, essentially, than not? And it uses what are called BF10 values and BF01 values. BF10 just means the probability that hypothesis one is more likely than zero, and BF01 is hypothesis that zero is more likely than one, and they're just inverse of one another, right? So if you get a 10 likelihood of BF10, that's a one tenth BF, they're just opposite. Um, do you feel that that's like a fair, rough explanation of what Bayesian statistics mean? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's terrible. Okay, <laughs> I'll I'll take not terrible. Um, so basically, higher BF higher BF one zero values mean a higher probability that one is correct than the other. Um, but what's really important, I think, um, what the values sort of mean, how they're described. Right now, Brad's paper cites Rafferty, which is sort of, I think, a, a fairly classical textbook, and all this goes back to like a nineteen sixty one textbook by Jeffries. And the the values are BF10 of less than one is no support. BF10 of one through three is weak support. Three through 20 is positive. 20 to 150 is strong. 150 plus is very strong, right? And I'll come back. The other people use different nomenclature, but it's all kind of within that range, right? It's clearly a big difference between BF10 of three and 150, right? BF10 of three, very weak support. 150, very strong support. 
kind of bigger numbers are better, essentially. Um, so again, looking at their numbers, all right? So for triceps, the group difference, BF10 was 0.66. So no support, just like the P, the P value, which kind of makes sense, right? Both statistics said there's no difference. For biceps, um, when they compared five sets to three sets, well, so again, so for triceps, the Bayesian factors did not support a difference. So one muscle, no support. For biceps, five sets compared to three was reported as a BF10 of 0.6. So also zero support by their own Bayesian numbers. So now two out of four muscles, the BF10 values do not support a difference between five and three sets. For rectus femoris, the BF10 was 2.34, which is weak support. And they use the word weak in the results. Um, make no mistake. <coughs> uh, the BF10, uh, let's see, vastus lateralis, the BF10 for three sets compared to one was 1.43, still weak. Five compared to three, it was 2.25. So yes, it was higher, but it's all still weak support. Again, they used weak in the results. So for two of the, for the quad muscles, there was weak evidence for three sets compared to one and a slightly stronger but still weak evidence for five over three. So the p-value showed no differences in any of the muscles. Three to five sets, rather. The BF10 values, no difference for two of them, weak difference, weak support for five better than three and two of them. So it's kind of a tie. Finally, before I turn it back over to you, other people use a different terminology for these BF10 numbers. Jeffries, who wrote the textbook, calls anything less than three not worth more than a bare mention. Wagenmakers, who wrote a paper talking about the US, use of Bayesian factors in psychology, describes it as anecdotal. So at best, two of the four muscles, there was anecdotal evidence for five sets being greater than three. So by p-value, by p there was no difference. By Bayesian, there was weak evidence for two muscles. How can that support the strong conclusion? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So I, I'll be happy to address that. Um, you know, the, the, if you look at the analysis in total... Um, that they conducted, you know, uh, statistically, in, in some ways it has a lot of strength, in other ways it has some weaknesses. Um, and that actually applies to every single kind of statistical analysis done on anything, especially in the real world of actual studies. We could always say the stats could have been better. And we can take this actually quite far. Um, there are quite a few individuals who I think have made the apt critique that nearly the entire field of sports science has um, uh, is basically composed of studies that can at best be described as hypothesis generating. And uh, so basically these studies, when they find something, you don't take it and run to the bank with it and instantly start to train with whatever number of sets they said or whatever load they said. What you do is that you take that study and you integrate it into your applied practice uh, where you use personal anecdote as well as experience with others, as well as theory of physiology in order to form uh, the properly best approach you can at the time, which is actually that whole triad is called evidence-based practice. There's you know, those three Bayesian circles of direct evidence, uh, sort of theoretical rationale, and, and personal experience and practical experience. So I think that if your critique is that the uh, statistics in this study 
uh, could have been stronger than I, I absolutely agree on a, a sort of principled basis. Yeah, the statistics in almost all study, all of sports science could have better stats. But the thing is, they usually just don't have the sample sizes, the instrument precision, and so on to be basically randomized control trials. And, and a variety of the descriptions for these various statistical cutoffs were designed for fields and by individuals working in fields in which randomized control trials are really just very, very common, uh, the gold standard, and or other than huge, huge analyses of, uh, of retroactive data, they're just the kind of studies they do. So, uh, you know, like many features of study design, the strengths and weaknesses are relative. Uh, so are the stats in this study perfect? No, absolutely not. Do they allow us to glean some likelihoods? I think they absolutely do. Um, and I think the studies uh, stats, when you take a look at all of them together, uh, are basically sufficient for guarded, guarded tentative inferences. And, and they're right on par in the field for, for what is uh, for stat stickness. And a lot of the studies you've cited over the years, they're right on par with those. Uh, and, um, you know, I think this is probably a good time to bring up the point of why are we putting so much stock in one study? I think one of the central ideas behind science is that any one study has, for a variety of reasons, both statistical and otherwise, of just being either sheer chance, pure bias, or some combination of the two where it's just just totally doesn't show up, fucking like, just has no reflection on reality whatsoever, right? That's always possible. So when individuals say, hey, what do you think about this study? Uh, usually the, probably a pretty good scientific response is, well, you know, I don't really like to look at studies in isolation because I'm trying to get the big picture of all the studies taken together, and now analyzing their various uh, merits and strengths and weaknesses, and then painting a picture of just a directionality in which we should consider to take our own training. So all of PubMed com composed together in sports science does not tell you how to train. It gives you ideas. It's almost all hypothesis generating. So basically they generate a hypothesis at the end of the study that is, you know, you just train more if you want more growth, which is by the way, not uncontroversial. And if, if, you, if you wanted that statement to be better, you could have made it better for sure, but I think it's fine as it is. And uh, you know, uh, what is what is interesting is why so much effort, uh, specifically by you, Lyle, uh, and some others, has been put into getting so deep into the study where all you could have done is said, you know, you know, it's just one study and maybe it's true and maybe it's not. Uh, and it's got some strengths, it's got some weaknesses, but let's, let's wait until there's more studies before we all try to train for 45 sets at a time, which, by the way, the authors never recommended. So... I think we can dive as deeply as you want into the stats of this study. The thing is, we can do that for almost every other study. Uh, you know, for example, uh, a study just recently came out, the uh, Barbalho study from Brazil, where they found an optim uh, they found an optimality of training volume uh, between five and ten working sets per week. And this was for females, by the way, which we know from prior research usually handle volume better. And they actually sort of refuted in the study the idea that ten to fifteen and fifteen to twenty were better. Five to ten seemed the best place for growth. So when you take all that together, it's kind of like, well, why aren't we just hammering that study and personally insulting the authors and saying they're biased? Well, because it's just one study and, and maybe 10 studies will come out and make that study look like, oh, just strange and it was off. Or maybe 10 studies will come out and say, well, that study is actually pretty good and maybe our volume estimates for whatever reason were different. So I think that because this is just one study, could it have better stats? For sure. But you know, the conclusions of the study are so limited and the conclusions of all studies 
studies of this nature and probably all studies should be so limited that there's actually no need to dive in to exactly how strong or weak the stats were, because I can tell you the inferential abilities of one study are weak to begin with. It's almost as if we're assuming that this one study comes out, right? And everyone's like a fucking lemming running off a volume cliff. They're dangling four or five sets and you're like, oh, let's do it. And everyone just shears their quad tendons off. I don't think that's the case. In an almost every personal communication or public media post, James and Brad had said, listen, that's not what the study says. And then I can, I'll sum up later when I go into my spiel of what it is they actually said the study said, or how to take it with a grain of salt and how to implement it into practice. And I don't think there's much of an issue there because it's just one very limited study. And I'm absolutely not going to defend the fact that it was a limited study. Absolutely, it was a limited study. Every study is limited. I just don't know why this one uh, is such a huge focus uh, for you personally. Well, that's my third point if we get there. And um, if no one's ever told you before, you should be a politician. Um, my criticisms have nothing to do with the broader base of sports science. My criticisms have nothing to do with the weakness or relative strengths of statistics. They said that there's a graded dose response for volume and hypertrophy. Just yes or no. Do you feel that these weak statistics support that? Ignoring it, all the other information which is irrelevant. Uh, I think this, I think that I think the weak statistics support it weakly. Yes. Then why did they use such a strongly and you can and this maybe this is I don't the agree issue. that they use strong language. They said without qualification, more volume equals more growth, and the stats don't support it. Period. There was an entire section of caveats in which they gave multiple qualifiers. You can't just take one sentence and say they didn't qualify. They can't qualify every sentence. That was just the last sentence you picked. There's an entire section of, I think, four major caveats to the study. And there's a ton of literature that, by the way, most people don't read primary research. So there's a ton of literature written secondarily by those individuals and others interpreting it where tons of qualifiers were given. And, and Brad and James do not tell people to train for 45 sets a week. So if you think one wording in one sentence was sufficient to crucify them over this, yeah, that's an interesting difference of opinion that you and I have. Um. Again, you should be a politician. Uh, hang on, I'm trying to actually find the qualifications in the paper. Because that sentence could easily be worded to. Our results suggest, and even if you look, want to look at the individual data that, Brad, that James put up, suggests that for some subjects, a higher volume of training may induce greater hypertrophic responses. That would have been a qualified conclusion, but that's not what they wrote. They, they wrote it in, in, in <laughs> they wrote it in almost every communication in which the paper is being interpreted. Uh, I, remember, I'm it, interested it, in what the paper said. I don't, I'm not in it, interested in the rest. This is only about the research paper, and I don't understand why this topic isn't being stuck to. What I do on my website, what I do on social media, I'm not on trial here. I'm st I'll, okay, so let me read the limitations. All subjects reported performing multi-set routines, the majority did not regularly train to failure. It's unclear how the novelty of altering these variables affected the groups. Second, upper body musculature was trained exclusively with multi-joint movements. The exercises involved extensive involvement of the elbow flexors and extensors, uh, as shown in the significant arm muscle hypertrophy. Indeed, research indicates similar changes both in upper arm MT and circumference while performing multi-joint versus single-joint exercises. It remains possible that single-joint exercises for the arms may become more important to hypertrophy when training with low volumes. Measurements of MT were obtained only at the mid-portion of the muscle belly, Although this region is often used as a proxy, the overall growth of a given muscle indicates that hypertrophy manifests in regional-specific manners. And 
And fourth, although subjects were instructed not to perform any additional exercise training during the study, we cannot entirely rule out they filed to follow our guidelines. Fifth, study relatively small sample size and was somewhat underpowered. I agree. While ultrasound is well-established method of assessing changes in markers of muscle hypertrophy, it is not clear how the magnitude impact aesthetic perform- appearance. Finally, findings cannot be generalized to other populations, including adolescents, women, and all. Yes, so they did qualify, and they qualified nothing about the claim that the statistics don't support that more volume equals more growth. Well, I think the statistics support it, but perhaps not as strong as you would like. So, so I, you think, I, that I, weak I, and anec- you think that the descriptors of weak and anecdotal evidence are in support? Uh, say that again. So you think that that BF one zero descriptors of weak, not even not worth a men- barely worth a mention, which is Rafferty's original ones, and anecdotal provide more than essentially irrelevant support for that claim. I think that those statistical cutoffs are designed for studies that uh, have a level of rigor that is outside the scope of almost all of sports science. If you applied that to uh, a huge swath of everything you've published on your website, uh, your entire website is rendered purely speculative at best. So, I, I, and Lyle, listen, I think you're fucking brilliant, and I think you're onto a lot of real, really correct shit, and I think that you have to take statistics for what they're worth, and when they're not telling you a ton, you got to just take what you can out of them, and sometimes that means taking not so much. I agree, the study just doesn't show all that much. I don't think it shows zero. I think there's a, a, a variety of trends, especially, for example, if you take an effect size analysis, you know, they, you know we, could, we can focus on base factors a lot, but if we focus on effect sizes, there's some effect sizes demonstrated. So, what? you know, and, and by the way, this study is a near replication of the Radielli study, which found very, very similar things. You don't just have to contend with this study. You have to contend with the Radiella study. You I analyzed the whole study. detail on that. I'm sorry. If you look at the data on that, it was a trash fire. None of the medium volume group showed any size difference. The triceps didn't start growing to like 27 sets per. That's there, what, there, sure. There's no logic to that one at all. And there, I analyzed there's, that. There's tons of logic to that. That's how real research works. You don't make up things. All research doesn't look perfect. Research is highly imperfect. A lot of times you get results with your own study and you're like, what the fuck is going on? You don't know. Statistical chance alone could make all of that go in really, really crazy ways. So all you have to do is take research and do one study and say, okay, well, this is what we got out of this study. Some of it makes sense, some of it doesn't. And you do another study and another study and another study and a pattern develops. You know, I think as, as sort of public intellectuals, if you and I were to grade ourselves that highly, I think it is uh, to some extent our purview to take the balance of the evidence and to present it as people, uh, uh, you know, to actually present recommendations. And if you see it fit to take the study and say, well, you found it very weak evidence. Uh, I think that a lot of people would not be inclined to disagree with you. I think it is, is weak evidence. I don't think it is very weak. I think it is weak. Um, and, and I think weak evidence has a huge place in sports science because that's almost all sports science, by the way. Uh, and and uh, so, so studies have limits. I don't think we're on, on to anything new here. And I don't, I don't well, think the results honestly, are self-contradictory. In that case, why bother? If all sports science is too weak to care about, why don't we just go back to what Arnold wrote? I mean, sure. you can't have That's it both a, ways. And I don't, again, I don't disagree with you. This is, this is a field. My I, mentor who studied rocks felt that all exercise science was just garbage. But rocks have a variation of, you know, 2%. Humans have sure. a variation of tenfold and can't be For controlled. Sure. Yeah, but there's not a recruitment study, problem with rocks. <laughs> If we're going to get to say that this paper gets to be sloppy because all papers are sloppy or a lot of papers are sloppy and this paper statistics are weak because if we if they had used effect sizes, which they didn't, I'm only holding the statistics that they used in the paper, but since other papers are weak, then 
there's no point in criticizing or agreeing with any paper. Oh, I think I think you can absolutely criticize it, but I think you have to spread your criticism evenly over a variety of papers. Um, to be honest, Lyle, it sort of looks to me like you could potentially just not really like the conclusions they drew, and you're criticizing them extensively on the, the a, you know, sort of post hoc, because they found some volumes that your recommendations don't agree with, which we can get to later, you decided to sort of unleash uh, every single bit of criticism you could. You know, the, 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 the Brazilian study I just cited on females, uh, the Barbalho study, I mean, I have, I have yet to, I've searched your site uh, to some extent, I've yet to see a very detailed, extensive, just total flaying of that study, because it also doesn't agree with your conclusions, but for some reason you managed to leave that out. When you, when you specifically massively criticize one kind of research that you don't agree with, and you fail to criticize to that level of extent a bunch of research, which is just held up on a platter for you to criticize because a bunch of the research, you know, is compared to this study, strong compared to the bunch of the studies that are cited uh, for, for the normal graded dose response between 10 and 20 sets. So I think that, you know, is this study not, you know, so to, to answer your point directly, uh, is all, are all sports science studies, uh, you know, crap or junk? No, they're all limited. They're all highly limited. But when we take 25 or 30 highly limited studies and they start to all point in very similar directions, we can start to get clues about how we should train athletes. Combine that with what we see as coaches, what we see as athletes, and then you have evidence-based practice. Would it be better if those studies were better? Sure. But just going after one of those studies per se, uh, because you think the conclusions are ridiculous, you know, thinking the conclusions are ridiculous is not a reason to go after one study per se, uh, thinking that the study is faulty to whatever extent it is, is fine. But, and, and I'll bring up, you, you, you sort of made this a personal vendetta and trashed a bunch of friendships along the way. And you call Brad a liar. That's a, that's a hell of a claim. And we can get that's to that, that one next. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I actually just haven't had time to get to Barbalho and I, I'd love to discuss it with you because I, I do think there's, it, this gets into the frequency of training and something, I, I guess some analyses, just briefly suggesting that there's a limit to the per set maximum for stimulus. I would love to see Barbalho redone doing 10 sets twice a week versus 5, 10, 15, 20 on one day a week, given the fact that women do recover more quickly, given that. I do actually think that they would see a difference. I simply, I have looked at it in detail. I've got some spreadsheets looking at the numbers, trying to figure it out. I haven't had time to, I just haven't gotten to it, but I will. So far as looking at other studies in this level of detail, I wrote that three-part series on training volume and hypertrophy. I'm sure you've looked. I looked at as, them in as much detail as possible. If you want to know why I'm focused, I, I, I don't give a damn what the results of this paper are. I truly don't. My problem with it has to do with point three. The only reason that I cared so much had nothing to do with conclusions. I like Brad. If I was going to trash anybody's paper, let's face it, I would trash yours. If I wanted to bring it personally, I mean, let's let's be honest. We're never going to like one another, and that's fine. I'm open to liking you, Lyle. <laughs> whatever. I, no, I don't. I don't. Whatever. I mean, fine. I'm not. Fair enough. If there was anybody's paper I was going to look over for a flaw with a fine-tooth comb, it would have been yours. The reason Brad's paper stood out brings us to point three and the whole line issue. So let's get to that, and then I'll turn it over to you because we both talk way too much. So what this has to do with, and I'm sure people have seen me babble about this endlessly, because that's what I do, uh, had to do with the discussion, right? So in discussions, it's traditional to examine other literature uh, in the field that has looked at the same topic, right? Ideally, you all like, you know, and to your point, I don't disagree. We look at literature as a whole. I tried to do that in that series I wrote. I looked at the seven or eight papers I'm aware of at the time that looked at dose volume in men to see if the pattern showed up. And they did. That 10 to 20 number we'll come back to. Brad's was an outlier. I still think 
I looked at Rodelli in detail. You and I can disagree with that. That's great. It still wouldn't change much. Six out of eight basically agreeing. We got these two weird outliers. If more data comes up supporting those numbers, I'll be happy to change my opinion. On it all, you can add another weird outlier. And we got three weird outliers out of eight. You mean the one you just did? The Han study? Yeah. Well, but it, it showed that weird cap. I mean, it showed a cap at 20. We're above that. It was extracellular water. I don't see how that's... It was not all extracellular water above that cap. It was not all of it, but it was the majority of it. Well, it it still shows that if you want to grow more, maybe more than 20 is a good idea. I would love it if the study said 20. Shit, that would prove all my fucking points of insane. It just doesn't show that. It it, it shows more than 20 grows more muscle. There is an efficiency loss there that was possibly demonstrated. Again, this very guarded conclusion. But uh, you have to, in in all due fairness, you have to add the Han. So you got Mattiello, you got Schoenfeld, you got Han. Three out of maybe 10 studies that looked at this closely... that's, you know, it's not looking like outliers anymore. That's looking as, as, as part of a, perhaps a, a real trend. But please continue. Perhaps. Um, I would also, again, we can maybe discuss your paper in detail on, in your half. So far as, I mean, whatever. I would, leave that to, I would leave that to Cody Hahn, the lead author, to do. Okay. I, just, I found a very, I did, One thing I found interesting is that, at least based on, I believe, the ultrasound, like I do wish y'all had biopsy triceps. I think that would have given a, a really uh, interesting to see if it agreed or disagreed, like the, the decks of numbers were going up. There was a big increase in extracellular water. The biopsy for quads actually showed a decrease and then an increase, as I recall, almost as if there was too little volume initially and it needed, and there is certainly anecdotal evidence that legs need more volume, whereas upper body, from what I recall, basically showed an increase and then a decrease. So it's entirely possible, and I do want to see more research on this, that upper and lower have systematically different requirements. I'm completely open to that possibility, and I would like to see it studied much more. Uh, I even think sure. the G- I think the government, the, the, the government, the German volume studies. <laughs> and, yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, Slip up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, the way they were structured, you couldn't really draw many conclusions because the leg volumes were too close. They needed a second leg day, but like some of the other data, I think is supportive of that certainly, and and we may very well find again this would be anecdotally supported. Uh, that legs do need somewhat more volume, right? They show whatever higher activation levels. You don't get maximal motor unit recruitment, just like for upper body, whatever, whatever. Some people think it's they're more resistance to growth because you walk all the time, whatever. Anyway, so one of the papers, again, in Brad's discussion, right, or in most discussions, you should look at the other data. Does it agree? Does it disagree? So that you can examine what differences, you know, in the papers might have explained that right? Papers are rarely identical. I think only those GBT papers literally use the same protocol because it was the same group when it was just longer. So this brings, and this was really what, what brought up my issue. This is the only reason I really even paid attention to this paper was the Ostrowski paper, right? So Ostrowski did, it was a 1997 paper. He used a design very similar to Brad's. 35 trained men, intermediate levels, 10-week workout. They did use a split routine, which meant they had a specific arm day and only one leg day. They used one, two, or four sets per exercise. So it's three, six, and 12 sets for lower body, which doesn't help much. Seven, 14, and 20 sets for upper. So this is very similar to Brad's six, 18, and 30, right? They measured triceps and rectus via ultrasound. I will note they did not mention if it was blind or not. So I'll assume that it wasn't, and this does raise the possibility of bias as well, right? It would be unfair of me not to have looked that up. <clears throat> um, they actually found that there was no statistical difference in any group. Um, 
uh, changes in RS rectus dermis circumference, cross-sectional area, tricep thickness, and body mass did not await. Uh, there's a, for just looking at triceps, because it's all that matters, there's a significant increase for all groups. Triceps increased in thickness by 23 4.7, and 4.8% respectively, right? 7, 14, 28. And it was one and two and two millimeters. So I would consider that as evidence that there is a plateau at 14 cents, right? Clearly doubling the volume did not increase absolute change. And the 0.1% difference, I don't think you and I are, it had to do with it being 43 to 45 and 42 to 44 or something. Would you agree that that shows a plateau with a moderate volume? Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, uh, the exact specifics of how I'd categorize it at this time. I, I think, uh, yeah, yeah like, I, I'd like to look at the totality evidence and not like just sort of zoom in on specific numbers. I, I'm interested in what exactly that Schoenfeld at all claimed about Ostrowski and how that reflects poorly on them. So, well, let's see, the thing is that if, if we're going to, you know, if, if, if you're just going to say I'm not going to agree or disagree that it's a, a plateau, then nothing I can say afterwards has any point. I, I don't. I don't actually believe that you can draw such specific inferences from comparing one subgroup of a study to another subgroup of a study. I, I can't. There, you have you're dealing with two or three time points. A plateau would have to be demonstrated across all conditions and all muscles to even be suspected. So, if if that study distinctly shows a plateau, that would be very different than one piece of that study may hint at a plateau. I'm not prepared to agree on the fact that there's a plateau. Probably because I'm not prepared to agree on the fact that that study elusive elucidated a ton of, of, of much of anything. So, so yeah, may, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll allow me to this far. Maybe they illustrated a plateau. I'm comfortable saying that. Well, I will say for quads, they did show a dose response curve, but again, three, six and 12, these were very low volumes and there's never any disagreement with that. But I, I don't, what, what other data, what, what do you mean by the totality of the data? That's basically it. When they measured pre and post post, there was these changes for so as well as 28. Yeah, so the totality data beat all the muscles they measured, did they find a plateau in every single condition of cross comparison? They only measured two. Okay, they, they, found a plateau in, they, they, they found a plateau in one, but not in the other, correct? But the other one was three, six, and 12 sets. Well, yeah, I don't know. That means I, I'm not so sure they found a plateau. I mean, maybe, like, uh, you know, that, that, gee, you know, if you're, if you're not a big fan of, of weak conclusions that based on almost nothing, claiming that a plateau was demonstrated, holy shit. If they published those results and said there's distinctly a plateau for that particular muscle group based on our results, I would fucking, I would f- freak out because that's well, absolutely not in evidence. Maybe, well, what they concluded maybe. was there was no difference in any group. Statistically, yeah, there wasn't. Maybe, maybe. Uh, that's the, sure. that is, okay. Those are the, those are their words. Uh, sure. Could, please continue. There's no point, right? You've already found a way to just simply dismiss what I'm going to say next. Because I, I, I don't know what you're going to say next. <laughs> yeah, you do. Um, I don't believe I, that. I, really? I... Okay. So anyway, so in, in his textbook, actually, Brad reports this paper uh, as having no statistically significant differences. Right. That's in his. Uh, whatever the title of this textbook is, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. This paper is listed as, uh, in another paper, in a systematic review, and he did a paper, Just Response Relationships Between Weekly Resistance Training Volume and Increase in Muscle Mass, a systematic review. Uh, he includes the Ostrowski paper and a list of papers reporting no volume-based differences. Right? So previous, so he is saying at this point, he agrees with Ostrowski's conclusions, that there is no statistical difference between groups which essentially means this paper, and it was the same thing for quads. It showed no difference in any group. 
So there was no dose response relationship. Um, like I said, whether or not you want to consider the percentages of evidence of plateau, I think it is. I think 4.7 and 4.8 are not different enough to, I mean, it, again, without statistical significance. I don't disagree with that one. Okay. Um, so, so this is how Brad described the paper. And this is, this is what alerted me, right? I like to read discussions of the paper. I see stuff referenced. I go to look because I frequently let people do the work for me and find papers I haven't what, read. What paragraph is this in on their paper? Um, this is in the discussion of uh, the Schoenfeld paper. Let me find, this is, find it. Let's just start with most previous researchers investigating. Um, no, it starts with results showed that percent, cha percent changes in effect sizes for muscle growth in the elbow extensors. I can it, – it's when he's examining other research on dose response to for hypertrophy, not strength. As far as what I think the data the, – the trend data, the percentages show, the moderate group was as good as the high. Only representing the high makes it look like Ostrowski agreed with Brad. It did not. It disagreed well, with Brad. Ostrowski agreed it with Brad. The, sure. So the, the Ostrowski group agreed with Brad insofar as the lowest groups caused less growth, the least growth, and the highest groups caused the most growth. Um, if Brad would have said that the study agrees with him even on the moderate groups, he would have been lying. Uh, he did not ever say that, to my knowledge. I, that's nowhere in the manuscript. So uh, he didn't just didn't speak about it. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, you know, you've said in earlier communications that uh, they said Ostrowski was evidence of dose response. They never actually claimed that. They said Ostrowski set out to test dose response, but they never actually said that Ostrowski found it. They said they found that the highest volume groups grew the most and the lowest volume groups the least. And, and that's true. Uh, could they have had a potentially more in-depth discussion about the middle group and what that means and what it doesn't? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. But it just didn't because they did not have that discussion. It means they just wrote a relatively limited paper in one journal and one publication at one time. That, that, that's, just, that's what happened. I, I don't think it's, it's evidence of like some kind of grand conspiracy. And I'm not, I, a, I never said criminality and B, I never said grand conspiracy. So You uh, did say lie. <laughs> I think it is. And you and I like can he, disagree he, he with that. He set out to lie purposefully. He, he and I discussed his paper about two years ago. He sent me this stress and said, hey, look, more volume is better. And I said, actually, if you look at it, 14 and 20, 28 are identical. Doing double the volume did not give significantly not more. Just one of the groups. Not, not all of them. What do you mean? Just one of the groups? Well, that's just for one of the muscles. For, for, I believe you said for quads, that was not the case. That there wasn't because it was three, six, and twelve, and there's uh, never been any debate between ten I, and twenty. I, I don't. I don't think you. I don't think you could. Yeah, I think you can say that because it was three, six, and twelve. We don't have the kind of power to say that. We just find you. you know, we find a greater, greater response, or we didn't. So, in the very technical sense, there was a greater response found for the quads, but not for uh, what was the other muscle? Triceps. Um, Rectus femoris and triceps. Right. So for the triceps, there was not a graded response. Uh, Brad never said there was a graded response for triceps. If he had said that, that, and then and then later said that's not true, uh, we could accuse him of changing his mind, potentially uh, lying. Uh, fuck Lyle. That's a that's a big fucking claim, man. Like uh, you know that, that. I don't think he ever set out to lie, and there's certainly no evidence to that effect. Well, well, here's how I'm defining it. He knew full well that the middle group got the same group as the high group. He chose to leave that data out when he could have easily included it. I consider that a deliberate misrepresentation. I consider that a lie. 
I'm going to have to strongly disagree with that. Is uh, the, you know, there's no evidence for deliberate misrepresentation. You cannot Except speak about every. Well, he, he knew he knew he knew way more than that. He knew a ton of stuff about Ostrowski. He could have discussed unbelievable depth, but he didn't because this is not the Ostrowski paper. It is the Schoenfeld paper, and they they discussed the relevant findings of Ostrowski. So they basically said, look, Ostrowski find that the lower group and the higher group uh, differed in hypertrophy in the level of directionality that our study found. That is a plain, true statement, period. Now, could they have gone in more depth and said, now, nah, the Ostrowski found this weird middle thing, but only in one of the muscles? That would have been like, I, if I was reading the paper, I'd be like, OK, I, it's, sure, I'm sure that's relevant somehow, but maybe just give us the sort of real broad strokes of Ostrowski. And listen, uh, Lyle, if they discuss that, would I say it was a bad idea? No. But what I say is, is a terrible idea that they didn't. I don't think so. I think it falls unbelievably short of willful misrepresentation. OK, so let me sum up my half. Um, Brad gets to be sloppy because all signs are sloppy. Brad stats don't support the results. I never said that. Well, you said that is that, is that a claim you're making? <laughs> my apologies. Basically, your your response to him not blinding is that well, it's not done in a lot of research. So even though it could, as far as I believe, easily be done, it's okay. Uh, despite the the like I said, I'm not saying he is or is not biased. Now he has written a paper that says, "Is there any question that more volume leads to more hypertrophy?" Roughly, I think it was more of a letter to the editor. Regardless. Blinding could have and should have been done in all papers. But especially I don't know what should have means. There's no such thing as should have. It maybe could have been I'm done. Sorry? I don't even know. I'm not even sure that could should have. If, they, if, you, if you replicate the study, blinding it would make it better. But insofar it was not blinded, it was limited well, to then, some then extent. Why, why, it was not like why even bother with tools like Cochrane if you can just say it's okay that we didn't do this and accept a high degree of bias? You should at I least think there are different degrees of okay. I think there are different degrees of okay. I think that uh, all studies lie on a spectrum. I think Cochrane attempts quite well to delineate that spectrum to some extent, mostly because Cochrane is, is, is a medically facing tool for scientists in which we're talking about randomized controlled trials, talking about drug trials. Look, if, yeah. if, 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 if this kind of study was done on drugs and they say, yeah, just take this drug because look, here's, that's a great, I would have been like, are you fucking kidding me? But it's not a drug study. It's a hypothesis generating study. And I think it generates a fine hypothesis that is by the way corroborated by at least two other studies. I don't think there's anything super groundbreaking here. If you want to say that the, uh, that the ultrasound could have been double-blinded, I totally agree with you. I think that would have been sweet. I think a variety of other things. I, I think the doubling the subject pool would have been fucking sweet, too. Uh, so I think it, your critique is fine as it stands. I just don't think that critique goes as far as to nullify the results. I think it diminishes the, res diminishes the results to the level of them being hypothesis-generating, which I, I don't think is a problem. I think that's all sports science right there. All right, so then the stats, you're basically saying that even though they were weak and or insignificant, since other studies I'm are weak. not saying they're insignificant. I'm saying that a, a, a particular analysis of some of the stats could result in, on certain indices, them being insignificant, but they are not all insignificant, and there are a variety of ways to do statistics. When you do the statistics on the whole study and a picture emerges, even without statistics, raw differences are valuable to some extent. So are the study stats weak? On a Cochrane level of analysis, absolutely. On a rest of sports science level of analysis, again, other studies you sort of uh, affirm, you know, with with a ton uh, of of support on your site. Uh, and I'm not I'm not knocking you for this. I think you're perfectly right in thinking those studies have some weight to them. I think the study has some weight to it. It's not an infinite amount of weight. And having stats that could have been stronger 
is 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 a perfectly fine critique. It doesn't cut the study out completely. It just says, okay, maybe we shouldn't be paying a ton of attention to this study, but you seem to be the person at the front of paying a ton of attention to the study. I'm not particularly sure why. Well, I told you why, and that's point three, which we're never going to agree on. I feel that leaving out that middle data point was deliberate, misrepresented. You're making that up. Yeah. You're literally that's making that up. That's my opinion. He knew. I had, the fact that he and I had discussed this, and I told him flat out, there's not a difference. And then he represented in this paper as if double set was bet was the all that mattered. He could have easily included the middle data, but it would have changed the conclusion to disagree with him. It absolutely would not have changed the conclusion. The conclusion was that the lowest and the highest groups, the lowest groups on the lowest growth, the highest groups on the highest groups, that is the only conclusion he drove from Ostrowski, and it is true. If he wanted to conclude a graded dose-response relationship of all muscles from Ostrowski, that would have been a lie, but he never did that. Amazing. Okay, let's move on. Sure. Is it my part yet, or, or what's going on, yes. Steve? No, I'm done. Yeah, if Lyle's finished, I think go for it, Mike. Make your points. Cool. All right. So, Lyle, some agreeing uh, and then potentially some disagreeing. So okay. just, just a couple points. So I think that uh, 10 sets is a fine uh, conservative starting point in training volume for intermediates. I think for beginners, it should be lower. Uh, to okay. be honest, I think for intermediates, 10 is probably a bit uh, high. Even I think there's a lot of people who respond well with even lower volumes. Uh, but, uh, you know, so that's so that's kind of like the beginning of the normal distribution of volume responses there. It's maybe around 10 sets, slightly lower. Um, okay. Great. Okay. So next point, and we can just go point by point and we'll see if you have uh, uh, disagreements with any of these points. Um, so uh, 20 sets uh, might be the top end for a lot of uh, lifters uh, as far as uh, their uh, sort of maximum recoverable volume or maximum beneficial volume uh, that they can do, especially long term. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, it's not yet clear from the literature entirely or from coaching consensus um, that that 20 really is as magic of a number as I would personally like it to be because it said they would confirm everything I've ever said was fucking true. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that 20, I think, is uh, maybe on your end, definitely on mine, purposefully conservative. I don't want to put a lot of stuff online that says, hey, you know, like I've done 30 sets of quads per week and I lived in, because you know how it works. I think you've actually said this before. Like if you put out a recommendation to regular like Reddit bros, they'll just double it, uh, <laughs> you know? Uh, and then so uh, if you go, go in the conservative end, maybe it's not going to get anyone killed. At best, yes. You, you and I I have probably found that, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I have to almost predict how badly someone will misinterpret anything that I write and take that into account. So, yeah, you and I are. um, I do want to, just real quick, I just want to make sure I'm clear. Um, I pulled down again because Reddit is all we're going to talk about. This comes from something someone put together called Dr. Isretel's Training Tips for Hypertrophy. You may or may not have seen it. Uh, I don't know if there's a way for me to send you the link, um, but it's basically, it, yeah. it's a culmination of sort of your body part recommendations. I just want to make yeah. sure I'm clear on what I'm reading. So envy is maintenance volume, right? That's like, if you just need to maintain a body part, totally. right? And I did some, some quick maths. It's about 50 to 66% of a reduction from what I believe is minimum effective volume, right? So agreement, right? That's the... All the tapering data, all the stuff, as long as you maintain intensity, up to two-thirds, roughly. Uh, MEV is minimum effective volume, right? So that's the minimum to get any growth. Sure. And that I see the lowest is triceps and hamstring at six, up to 10 for back and chest, which basically what you just said. Yep. Uh, maximum adaptive volume. I take that as. Yeah, I would just leave that. I, uh, yeah, that's just like an average, but I, I think okay. maximum recoverable is more pertinent. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I mean, whatever. It's all the lowest I see is four for glutes. The highest I see is 22 for back. Um, I mean, it's all we're in that 10 to 20 range, you know, when sure. I do sort of a what I consider a rational remathing, um, which we can talk about how we count isolation, like 8 to 16, 10 to 20. Eh, it's all kind of good. And then MRV, like the lowest I see front delts at 12. Um, I was curious, rear side delt is listed as 26 plus. Are you combining those or is that like separate exercises? Uh, so a ton of exercises train those together, but, uh, each, each one can handle that many sets. It's just that a lot of exercises count as one and one set for each one of those. So it's kind of shorthand. Okay. Um, the frequency is a little, and we may not have time to, to delve into this and like some possibly your recommendations have changed. Like I see some are one to 1.5 chest front delts back two to four quad up to three rear side delt two to six times per week. Um, maybe this isn't the time to get into this. Well, yeah. Let's just get stick to the volume stuff. So okay, no, that's fine. yeah. So, so okay. a lot of the recommendations I have made, basically some of the MRVs, I suppose now average MRVs, average top end limits for volume were sort of at the highest in their mid twenties. Right. And I never really went outside of that in those guides, yeah. which I think I wrote those guides like maybe two years ago or something like okay, that. Fair uh, so, so, so here's the deal. Uh, the literature so far has shown, uh, you know, so we take Schoenfeld, Radielli, and Hahn. It seems that, yeah, for the most part, probably most people will get their best results between 10 and 20 sets, or many people, maybe not most, but uh, that is not the totality of what could be going on, right? So um, we already talked about study criticisms. So basically, multiple studies show benefit currently of 20 plus sets. It's not just Schoenfeld, uh, it's Radielli, and there's also Hahn and the German volume studies, depending on which groups you look at of which muscles, the 20 plus actually seems to be a benefit. Um, to the extent, uh, something you said earlier is that no one actually trains like this. Uh, James Krieger himself has been productive in far excess of a 25 plus set range for months on end. Uh, Jacob Skepis uh, has been productive in those ranges and has documented his journey. He's a very good evidence-based practitioner. Matt Henselman's with countless clients goes into the 30 and greater set range. As a matter of fact, I spoke to one of his clients who was a female. She's doing 70 working sets of back per week. Now, uh, that's not for everyone, right? It's not for everyone. But what I will say is that the data currently, including these multiple studies, these experiences, in addition to that data, and the theory that we have a normal distribution of volume tolerance with tails, right, is that it's very likely and perfectly in line with theory that occasional forays, at least occasional forays, into the 25 to 40 plus set volumes for one to three months at a time may bring up certain body parts, especially if you reduce volume for the other body to free up basically the systemic recovery ability. So I think that if someone is doing 35 sets per week for a body part, I wouldn't instantly say, oh, that's greater than 20. You're a fucking idiot. I would say, oh, interesting. How did you arrive at that 35 sets? And they say, well, you know, I scaled up to it slowly. I was recovering. I was performing. I was getting bigger. It kept working. And also I'm training my legs less. So the 35 sets doesn't actually feel that terrible on my body. And they say, you know, I could only survive this for a couple of months, sort of functional overreaching, and then I tear it back down. I think that's perfectly fine. And remember, all of these studies that we're talking about, this is not an infinity amount of time spent training like this. Uh, I think most people can't even survive 20 sets in, per- in perpetuity. I think what you can survive in perpetuity is like 10 on average, right? And some people can survive 20 sets, but most people can't. I think that if you're going to go into the 30-set rep, uh, 30 range 
40 cent range, I think it almost for everyone should be a, basically a slow functional overreaching or a reprioritization program that has to be brought back down. So in my view, the final verdict on this uh, volume stuff so far is that each person has to find their own minimum effective volume roughly and find their maximum recovery by slowly ramping up volume with occasional deloads, of course, occasional low volume phases, gauging their recovery their performance, and especially their results. And look, if someone is exceeding 20 sets and they're finding it to be very productive on both perceptive and actual measures of muscle growth, I'm not going to tell them, look, you're out of the 10 to 20 range. So uh, I think that you know, the, what the Schoenfeld study shows, Roddy, Ellie, and Hahn together, is that, look, if you can recover and adapt occasional forays into high volume, uh, probably a pretty good idea or could very well be a good idea. And just leaving it at 10 to 20 sets, I think, is needlessly simplistic. Uh, and it's likely to hurt hard gainers most because it's been shown in a couple of ways that hard gainers are probably individuals that have uh, relatively high minimum effective volumes and probably high maximum recovery volumes. A lot of times they have a, a higher percentage of slower push muscle, muscle fibers, which don't take that as much damage they recover quicker. So I think uh, that those folks that are hard gainers could probably benefit the most from scaling volume slowly but surely, never jumping to it, always monitoring recovery beyond potentially the 20 set limit. limit. Uh, and I think that is my interpretation of the evidence. And I would like to know if you disagree with any of that or to what extent you disagree with it. I mean, like everything, yes and no. Like first, I don't disagree that occasional forays, right? Absolutely not. Um, it's funny, you know, whenever I wrote up specialization cycles years ago, and it was exactly that. You pick two body parts, you hammer the hell out of them for six to eight weeks, which was usually long enough, but you maintain the rest, right? You can, you can hand wave about Russian current adaptational reserves and uh, freeing up biological recoverability or whatever by allowing you to, to hammer those body parts. Like whatever, whatever voodoo we want to invoke, it works. Um, one thing I think is worth addressing, all right, so if you're doing, you know, like I said, one, just from a workout standpoint, 5 by 15 RM on 90 seconds, that is going to rapidly drop your loads like crazy. No one can do repeat 15 sets of, sets of 15 to failure on 90 seconds and not have their weight fall off. When you say you have someone doing 30 sets or 25 sets or 40 sets, what level of intensity are we talking about here in terms of either – percentage loading, reps in reserve, like obviously these play huge roles. Sure. I would also ask, secondarily, do we know this is a normal curve? Like it's always fine to find what I would probably consider outliers. Do we know this is actually a normally distributed curve in terms of MAV or MRV or whatever you want to call it? What are the alternate distributions that you would propose? Well, it could be like, I mean, where it would simply... Most where, well, I guess it depends on how you, like I said, you'll see this is where my stats fall apart. I mean, as far as a normal curve, if the average person is going to optimally grow at, say, 15, would we expect as many to do better with 25 as with 5, which I think would be a very bad description of a normal curve? That's a fine description, maybe, right? Yeah. We don't okay. know if it's a perfectly normal curve for sure, but I think sure. in most biological systems going forward, we assume some degree of normality sure. because they're multifactorial in the way that intersects with results in the bell curve. Um, but anyway, so I, but I think really the bigger issue question in my mind is, well, we can always, you know, play the cop-out card. Well, who knows if they would have done better with X, Y, or Z, right? There's always that, which I'm not going to play. But what intensity are we talking about? Somebody's doing, so the woman doing 70 sets for back, which I would still personally question the benefit of regard, just 
fundamentally, I don't, to me, that tells me something. If they need, if they need 70 sets for back, and I realize it's a complex muscle group, I think there's something more systematically wrong going on, but what intensity are we talking about? You mean relative intensity or, or how much weight they're using? Um, relative intensity. Are we talking about repeat sets of 10 with 60% with four reps in reserve? So it's training. Are we talking about 70 cents to 70 sets to within a rep or zero of failure? Totally. So in my volume guides, which you just cited, um, I actually, my recommendation for training turns into an average of two reps in reserve for any mesocycle okay. with most mesocycles, usually beginning at three or four reps in reserve and ending up at zero to one reps in reserve. So when I give my, and this is all in the, in the guide itself, um, mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of training to failure all the time. I think it's a good way to just they basically eat shit and die after a bit. Um, I understand that training to failure is a very good way to conduct exercise science studies because attempting to uh, delimit something uh, as X reps from failure, RIR, as uh, Helms and, and colleagues showed recently, you know, that carries with it quite a bit of, of estimation error itself sure. and it starts to really mess things up. So I think, um, you know, one of the first things I'd say if someone was trying to learn to lift weights from PubMed studies is be like, well, everyone always trains to failure. Be like, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> right. So yeah, I think no, I that once, yeah, once so there's, but there's other factors that can point in the other direction. You know, these people are supposedly sort of well-trained in some of these studies. Yeah. Motherfucker lives for, for three years. Motherfucker, that's not well-trained. You know, you yeah. barely know shit after three years, 10 years, maybe that's well-trained, right? So, so someone's, you know, how psychologically prone are they to push themselves? Remember people who volunteer for studies, not always, but usually clearly they don't have their own fucking shit going on with training. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, like none of us would volunteer for a fucking study cause we got our own thing. Like nobody's fucking with my periodization, putting me into a study and have me do fucking shit that just proves a hypothesis. But the kind of people that volunteer for studies, you know, their first day of going to failure could be 10 reps off of failure. And as they get to build their swag up a little bit, and as they're pushed a little harder, as they get to be comfortable with not dying in the gym, maybe their reps in reserve, actual reps in reserve, mm-hmm. you know, they're reporting failure every time, uh, could end up being like, you know, higher and higher and higher and higher. So uh, it's one of those things where, and I think this, is, this speaks to an early point I had about the very huge limits on applying single studies to actually designing training programs. Uh, you, you have studies give you theoretical directions of, ooh, maybe more volume is better, but 50 caveats. And the caveats are what you work out when you design your training program. So you start with a training program that fundamentally works, and then you slowly increase the training volume to see your responses. I think that's a better method than seeing like, well, uh, what about training to failure or counting reps, right? Counting sets for, is it, you know, compounds versus isolations? I think, you know, getting specific numbers out of studies itself is already not the greatest thing in the world. As a matter of fact, my 10 to 20 set stuff was developed. Some of it was with research inference, but a lot of it was developed with just sheer data collection that we've done through my work over a long time with a shitload of people that we've coached because the studies are designed in such interesting ways that I'm not even sure if these are like real world conditions, right? So I think that, you know, when you start asking about conning reps and all this other stuff, I think that's the part of evidence-based practice in which it's up to the practitioner to figure out exactly how they want to do it. I think research can say things like, hey, more might be better. And like Schoenfeld said, you might want to train more if you want to grow. And then someone says, okay, I'm training this much. Let's see if that works. And for some people, it'll work because their maximum recoverable volume is leagues ahead of where they thought there was. And for some of the people, they may eat shit, eat shit, eat shit. And then it doesn't work. That's actually how I found out the concept of maximum recovery volume myself is I just continued to overreach in the same number of sets every week. And I was like, fuck, this is not working. Some, there's some kind of limit there. So I think we have to be very, very careful how, 
not to overdo study interpretation so that we can leave a lot of it for the actual practitioner and the coach to deal with. Okay. Just going. How's that for a run on sentence? Yeah, no, seriously. Um, first off, I was going to say if there was one study and I think you would agree with me that I would enter the thousand calorie a day overfeeding studies. <laughs> Didn't they feed um, them shakes? What, yeah, no, I would food? do like, yeah, like the human buffet study. I would do that in Oof. a heartbeat. That's no, fun. seriously, I would sign up for that in a heartbeat. That would be awesome. Also, sleep studies. If they told me yeah. I could sleep for six months. And Here's $600. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was one they were paying like $17,000. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. Yo, sign I'm even up. having this debate. We need to be getting into those studies. <laughs> sign me up any, all day, every day. Um, so far as the intensity, like, again, we are completely in agreement. Like, I've typically thrown out, you know, two to three RIR. In, you know, especially when you start a cycle, start a little bit submaximally, build up, you know, whatever. I know Zordos has shown four can work. I think you and I, that might be at the very early part of the cycle. I do think most people will, in a series of sets, start at a three and probably go three, two, one. They may get very close to failure on the fourth set. Um, I personally use that as kind of a metric for when to add weight, right? If your goal is eight reps and you can get 12 on your fourth set, probably time to, to bump it up a little bit. Sure, sure. I, don't you, I don't think you would disagree with like just every three or four weeks, test yourself. It's just sort of a, a auto regulation metric. Um, the failure thing, again, I don't think training to failure all the time is a good idea. I think for beginners, they actually should for exactly what you said, find out where their limits are. They go on oh, at failure. I'm like, there's, I think Ken Leisner, probably Arthur Jones said, you know, if you think you're a failure and I put a gun in your face, you'll do two more. Jeez, Arthur right, Jones was hardcore. <laughs> uh, you know, was, uh, for everybody, for all the slagging high-intensity training guests, if you look at bulletin number one, he was pretty much right. You know, it's funny. It was nine sets to failure a week, uh, superset, you know, that crazy squat, like yeah. press. You know, the, the man was a little bit cracked and liked alligators, but he was definitely onto something. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only other thing I'll add, you mentioned just sort of the increasing the volume until you break. It seems like... Uh, there's an old Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin asks his dad how to figure out the weight limits on bridges. He says, well, you just drive heavier and heavier trucks over it till it collapses and you rebuild it. And it seems to, and again, this is this, I think this is the issue between theory and the average Reddit bro is that when you tell them to do this, when you say use a limited time for this stuff, and I don't disagree, like I've done some crazy ass training and you can get away with about six weeks before you break. Or at least I could when I got older is that when you tell them this, they don't hear the limited part. They don't hear the two or three body parts a week part, right? Because even if you look at a lot of these, like yours, was the, this was the case. By the time you got up to even the 20 set per week mark for four, I mean, that's, well, doesn't really work. You know, we're talking about 30, 40, 50 set workouts possibly. Mm-hmm. That's a long time in the gym that I think the majority of people can't even sustain a decent intensity on. Right. That ties it in depends with on how much you're trying to come into the gym. Also depends on how strong you are. A lot of females can do sets like with a blink of an eye, they rest 15 seconds between sets and get full recovery. So there's, Oh no, like that's what I mentioned. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. A woman could do four by 15 RM squat on 90 seconds and not breathe heavily. A man does a true set of 15 or 20 to failure and he's going to have to lay down for five minutes. So yeah, we're, we're in total agreement on that. Uh, and that's somewhere other than the Barbalho study, there's certainly not a tremendous amount of evidence. I do wish. Sure. Not direct, not direct evidence. Rather, there is evidence that they fatigue less, generate less lactate, recover more quickly, blah, blah, blah. But there's not really much in terms of, you know, 
my rough average, eh, maybe 20, 30% more as a starting point. I don't know if that scans with what you've, you know, if you're going to give a guy 15 sets, maybe give the woman another four or five, you know, another 30%, 20, 30% on top of that. Yeah. Is the equivalent to, to, to use to use a, f- a fun word I like to use every now and again. I think you have to parlay in the neuroendocrinological differences between males and females. Oh, sure. And uh, so basically, like, I think females probably start at the same place as males, because a lot of females through some combination of genetics and culture are like, I'm not sure if I can do this. And you're like, you're fine. And then you they certainly can go further in the volume and maybe they start at the same place. But I, I have no problem, like you said, starting them at a higher volume, because I think I absolutely can usually recover just for clarification, like what have you found on average, like compared to men? Is it 30%, 50%? Like what general differences? Just because I'm curious. Yeah. You know, so I'd be very comfortable with 30, I think 50 for some females, but, but mm. they're like, like uh, basically like you take a, a male's volume and you, you multiply it by 1.3. I think at that point, I'm, I'm not like worried about the female. I'll put it this way. My wife does volumes in the gym, which I look at, I, I program for her and I'm like, she's going to die for sure. And she's like, Oh, that was a good workout. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so it, I think it's one of these things where if you ever train women, and I think you do, Lyle, to a considerable yeah. extent. Um, you, you look at them do things and you're like, on paper, this looks like murder, but apparently it's just fine to them. So it, it's kind of cool how, how science works like that, where, you know, personal experience only takes you so far. Well, yeah, I've got a female powerlifter who can do repeat near limit singles, 90 seconds. Yeah. I mean, this, this is something that a man would take five, 10 minutes to recover from. If yeah. she stands around for two minutes, she cools off. For sure. Um, we actually had to program that into her, her meat. Her meat warm-ups, I actually warm her up. Her final warm-up is two minutes before her rep. Yeah, that makes sense. Because otherwise, she just cools off standing around, and I actually take her back to the warm-up room in between her attempts because that 10 minutes is too long for her. Yeah. And I give her a heavy rep two minutes before her actual class. Anyway, we're way off off topic here. Um, So, yeah, like, again, you know, I don't – I personally just – I can't see – well, back is interesting because you've got traps, mid-back, lats. If you want to get really specific, three different segments of traps, low back. Like, I do think back needs systematically more volume simply because of the complexity. And then it depends on how you count back, right? Are you counting oh, yeah. all pulling movements as all back? I think like, to, to the extent that I cited that 70 sets of back, you know, yeah. I, don't think you, I don't think you and I have to explain that. I think we have to take it at face value and say, okay, there's some combination of her straight up lying about it, which is, I think, unlikely. There's some combination yeah. of she's underdosing her intensity like fucking wild, which is potentially possible, but maybe a that little bit unlikely. Yeah. Sure. And that's that's perfectly a uh, reasonable hypothesis. And then we also have to factor in the fact that she just might be a fucking genetic freak. You know, if you told someone that there was a bodybuilder, not a powerlifter, a bodybuilder who was deadlifting 800 pounds for reps and he had a 28, 29 inch waist in Arlington, Texas, 10 years ago, they'd have been like, you're a fucking idiot. And then you bring them in the gym and show them Ronnie Coleman. They'd be like, what the fuck is that? Like, that's not a human yeah. being. And they'd be like, well, he, that's just one guy, you know, uh, which is interesting. I think like a lot of people try to, I'm sure a lot of you've seen this in your career where people try to make a, a categorical demonstration of a principle using one outlier crazy ass person where they're like, oh, well, Michael Phelps eats 10 trillion calories a day, so I should too. It's like, okay, you're not Michael Phelps. So what, what I'm saying is about the, you know, the 70 set thing is that people have reported very high volumes. That's just one example of them. Is it a chance that that's not an example? And there's a, a variety of ways in which that's not actually as much volume as you would think. Totally. But it is also equally likely, I think, uh, just at face value, that that really 
really is how much volume. Um, and so I think we, we need to keep a very open mind to this. And look, if future studies find that uh, our interpretation of like 20 is a top end is really pretty solid, dude, you and I will fucking, you know, bang fists about it and it'll be fucking sweet. But if the studies find that, look, you know, for a huge swath of people, particularly maybe females, some other populations, 25, 30, and even, even more sets, especially for short timeframes are totally cool and totally recommended. You know, uh, will I be like, oh, fuck, I got that wrong. Yeah. But well, do we have to just take it as it is? Yeah, I think so. Um, there's something I was going to say. Oh, I don't know how versed you are in the history of this nonsensical field, which is, there's a lot, let's face it, there's a lot of BS from back in the day. There was an old time belief that triceps needed 33% more volume than biceps. You ever heard that? Because they're they're 33% bigger or some stupid shit like that? Because it's three heads versus two. Oh, wow. (laughs) There you go. That's thinking for you. Bodybuilding magazines. Um, So back to the volume, like I said, I I don't disagree, like, for the occasional period. I think most people, and this is is a person issue, which I do think is relevant. The average person will not hear two to six weeks. We can go into the gym all day, every day, and see guys doing a million sets for chest that are all injured. So, but again, that's an application standpoint. I guess from a practical standpoint, and I know you said kind of ignore the, the maximum adaptive volume. Right. If we're looking at just like long term gains, and I'll come back to one other point that I think Steve wants us to shut the hell up. I can see it. I can see it. He's been whining that for an hour and a half now. Like everybody else who's involved is. Well, so number one, like we know we know there's a genetic limit, right? That as a natural, there's a point you're going to reach that you're just not going to get past. I think we'll, I presume we would agree on that, right? We know that you gain a lot in the first year and less in the second year and less in the third year. And by the time, I'm assuming proper training, by the time you get to year four or five, natural bodybuilders are suffering to gain half a pound. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know about those specific figures, but yeah, Lyle, I do sure. there's a diminishing rates of return and eventually reach a near asymptote. Yeah. Sure, think, think just conceptually, the, the, year, the year markers don't really matter. But in that context, all right, so let's say, okay, I want to get a little bit of specialization. I want to get a little bit more growth. So I do an M, you know, I want to do an MRV specialization cycle for eight weeks and I get that little bit of extra growth, right? So we compare that to the guy who's just staying in that moderate effective volume, whatever, somewhere between MEV and MAV, just making consistent gains, adding weight to the bar over time, which in one of your articles, I remember you actually said, like, that's the key to growth over time is adding weight within that L12 range, similar to what Dante Trudell says. It's what I've been saying. We've all been kind of saying all along, you do have to get stronger incrementally over time, not workout to workout, but over sure. some time period. The biggest naturals are typically the strongest naturals. That's the um, same thing for drug-using bodybuilders too, by the way. Eh, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, which is, of course, the problem. That's why Ronnie, unfortunately, is having the health problems he, he is. He had to go. I mean, it's unfortunate, um, but he had to be pulling, you know, moving those kind of weights. Exactly. So let's let's say we take two people, right? We've got two guys, and they're going to train over. Let's say it takes five years to hit their limits. They one just keeps in that moderate volume, just keeps trucking on along. The other one throws in these MRV cycles every once in a while. Is it going to change the limit they get to, or is just the MRV guy maybe gets her a little bit faster? And as um, a follow up. Is it then worth the potential risk of injury, burnout, overtraining? I mean, even the Ostrowski paper, another finding it had was bias volume group saw a negative shift in the testosterone to cortisol ratio. Sure. So, so it seems like there's, I guess, what's, is it worth the potential, are the potential benefits 
worth the potential negatives, right? Even your own study, you said you kept it six weeks because some people wouldn't get hurt, than just keeping it at kind of a middle optimum value and just trucking along and adding weight as you can. Yeah, so I think like uh, I think the the biggest factor for getting you hurt eventually is how strong you get. Anytime you get under four or five hundred pounds squat, every rep is a chance of injury. And if you accumulate fatigue over six weeks by not increasing volume slowly, but instead by increasing intensity more quickly mm-hmm. than you would otherwise, then you have sort of intensity mediated factors, which means instead of uh, just it is a very very hypothetical instead of squatting four hundred pounds every single week or anywhere between four hundred and four twenty for every single week for six weeks, but you add sets, instead of doing that, what you do is, you know, 400, 410, 430, 440, et cetera, and you end up at 460 at the end of that six weeks. I think that uh, ending up at 460 in it is now a high fatigue state and very heavy weights versus uh, in a high fatigue state from the volume, but with light weights, it is at least by no means clear to me that the volume condition is more likely to get you hurt. And if I had to take a gamble on it, I would say the higher intensity condition is more likely to get you hurt. I think you have a much higher chance of getting hurt if you are ramping intensity as a priority, staying in the middle volume range uh, and getting to really cr- very, very high intensities as, as far as absolute weight lifted uh, when you're maximally fatigued before you deload because you will still accumulate fatigue in exactly the same way. But because you're maximally fatigued and you're squatting 460 versus maximally fatigued and you're squatting a shitload of sets at just 420, I think the shitload of sets of 420 is just kind of like, this fucking sucks. Your chance of traumatic injury, I think, is just much higher with uh, when you're squatting in the higher absolute load. So, uh, you know, at, at the very least, I think that might be like equivalent risk, but I don't think it's a higher risk. I think because if you're pushing it hard, you have to overreach on something every now and again. You have to add weight to the bar, so on and so forth. If you never push it, you will absolutely get a smaller amount of gains, period, uh, in lifetime and in the short term. And, and first of all, and second of all, you know, if you push it with intensity, it is by no means clear to me that it is better than pushing it with volume. I would say it's a little bit on the advantage of volume. And, and just, just to rephrase, MRV doesn't mean you go till you break. It goes until you experience a decrement or an inability to perform at your usual, uh, your usual metrics. So as soon as you lose reps on a lift uh, within some context, then you have reached your MRV and it's time to deload. It doesn't mean you get hurt. I've run, Jesus, I don't even know how many cycles into my MRV or close to it for years and years and years. I've coached tons of people. Almost nobody gets hurt. They're just like, oh, I had a shitty workout. I'm really out of juice. Like, well, time to deload Um, versus having a really, really good workout, putting a ton of weight on the bar. Uh, a lot of injuries happen like that. So so I would say that, first of all, MRV is not a recipe for going until you break. It's not going until the bridge breaks. It's going until you know the loading is there that, you know, if you kept going, the bridge would break eventually, but you have to keep going for weeks for that to happen. And secondly, I think if we're going to prioritize intensity progressions versus volume progressions, it's not clear to me that intensity progressions are less injurious. I think it might be the other way around. And, and as far as getting you there sooner, for competitive bodybuilders, getting there sooner is quintessentially important because nobody gives a shit if you reach your max muscular at age 40, do one show and retire. You're going to be anybody. But if you get there at age 30 instead and have 10 years of amazing competition, then you're going to be fucking doing super great. Here's another thing. If you get somewhere faster, you have gotten to a point in which you are still more youthful, less injury uh, prone, and more likely to put on more gains. If someone reaches the tip of their spear at age 40, geez, you're 40. It's, you know, like there's only so much you can gain after that. But if someone reaches the tip of their spear abilities by the time they're 30, they're still young and they still have a potential to take that even further. So I think there's an absolute difference there as well. Well, yeah. I mean, competition athletes, it's, you're always talking about a different thing, although that no. reminds me of, go ahead. 
sorry, last thing. To, to be clear, if we're talking about the recreational athlete who just wants to fucking get in the gym, feel the swag a little bit, put on some muscle, I'm not telling these motherfuckers, like, you know, start ramping volume and shit. I'd just be like, find a volume range that works for you. Uh, keep it on the low end. Keep it on, like, the uh, Berge Fagarelli has been a big a fan of this lately, where it's yeah. like, look, if you do, like, eight sets a week, you get great results. You can still be a fucking dad. You don't have to leave your wife for the gym for three hours. I think that's totally cool. But if we're talking about competitive athletes, I think there's some merit in this sort of advantage periodization and i trust me i absolutely don't disagree with the word of that and i think this this might honestly come down to probably our biggest disagreement is population groups right obviously if you're talking about a competitive powerlifter trying to set records you're going to have to push the limits right sure. although i remember hearing something matt gary once wrote he said the guy that's that's making consistent gains over time is the guy that's staying injured and powerlifting different sport different concept yeah if you're talking elite athletes you're going to have to push the limits certainly further um, and I'm also not talking about, you know, taking 10 years to get to your limits. We're talking about the guy who starts at 22 and gets there, whether it's 25 or 27, and again, wants to have a life and not live in the gym. So I think I suspect a lot of our supposed disagreement does come down to what population we're predominantly Absolutely. addressing. And that's, of course, the context that is typically lost on this. Um, I guess, you know, the danger I see, and again, this is more of a person problem then a principal problem is that everybody on the internet thinks they're more advanced than they are. Everybody in the internet on the internet thinks that they train with t- 10 times the intensity of any human that's ever lived. And neither of these things are correct. Also, they think that they're going to eventually be competitive bodybuilders, which is also incorrect. So I guess, again, a lot of where I'm coming from is why bother? Kind of like Blade says, um, you know, even Dante, he uses very low volumes of high intensity training. It's just like, you know, he, he, and maybe he's the one you should probably debate about a lot of this because he, his dog crap training is rest pause with that eccentric loading two to three heavy sets every fifth days. And he seems to be bring, building some pretty big monsters from what I can tell. But yeah, I do think it just comes down to context. Um, and I, and I'm frequently writing for more of the general population, unless it's explicitly something written towards somebody that wants to compete. So for sure. Yeah, I think that's all I have. Uh, Steve, you want to want to prod us a, a bit more? Or are we good? No, I think I just want to say thank you both for kind of conversing about this, even about the study. I know there was disagreements, but it was fantastic. I think the audience is going to really enjoy hearing specifically both of you talk through your points and um, all of that. And even though there wasn't necessarily a consensus, it was some great take homes. And then finally, the discussion at the end was, again, fantastic uh, to you both kind of yeah have your back and forth. And I think there's some real take homes for everyone listening. So massive thank you from myself. I enjoyed every minute listening to you guys. Um, you conversed really, really well. It wasn't kind of like a battle there at all which is fantastic and i think all the listeners would want to thank you both for taking the time to do this one last thought i'll let mike have his i think if there's one thing mike and i both agree with is that we'd love to hear our own voices oh my god <laughs> i i literally masturbate to the sound of my own voice i speak to myself when i jack off hey dude it's valentine's day Whatever That's what I do every balance. <laughs> no, no, no judgment. All righty. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on, guys. Right. I really enjoyed it. Take Thanks, care. Steve. Thanks, Mike. Bye. Bye.